Hi, I'm Sarah Trott, and welcome to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm a new mama, and this podcast is all about postpartum care for the first few months following birth, the time period also known as the Fourth Trimester. My postpartum doula, Esther Gallagher, is my co-host. She's a mother, grandmother, perinatal educator, birth and postpartum care provider. Fourth Trimester Care, our topic, is about the practical, emotional, and social support parents and baby require. And importantly, it helps set the tone for the continuing journey of parenting. Hi, welcome back to the Fourth Trimester Podcast. I'm Sarah Trott, and I'm here with special guest Renee Kramer, who I'll introduce in a moment. And before I do, I'd like to remind all of our listeners to please go to fourthtrimesterpodcast.com, check out our sponsor page, our Facebook page, definitely sign up for our newsletter if you haven't done that yet. We would love to be able to share special information and announcements with you that go along with every diff- every show that we record. And now I have the honor of introducing Renee Kramer to you. So uh, we heard about Renee from another guest on our program, Angie Sonrode. So if you haven't heard her episode, you can go back and look at that. That is episode 28. Um, She is a documentary filmmaker. um, So we really valued um, being introduced to Renee. She is a professor and chair of law, politics, and society at Drake University, and she's the author of Pregnant with the Stars, Watching and Wanting the Celebrity Baby Bump, published by Stanford University Press in 2015. And she is currently working on a project to understand the regulation of midwifery in the United States and the activism of pro-midwifery advocates who seek to make the profession legal where it isn't. The research is supported by the National Science Foundation. Um, So... Wow, that's an amazing background. We're so pleased to have you. Thank you. Um, Thanks for joining us, Renee. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So just to kick us off, let's talk about you. How how did you get to be doing what you're doing and what prompted the book? Well, hmm. The book was prompted by wanting to avoid the book I was writing on midwives, actually. (laughs) Maybe not avoid it, but so... You know, as a professor, as a faculty member, one of my jobs is to do research and write about things that I'm passionate about. And I was a faculty member at Cal State University, Long Beach, and pregnant with my child. I'd been there five or six years, and my first book had already come out. And I was looking for a second project. And as I met with moms, I realized that midwives were legal in California, but some of them felt like they were operating in ways that made the practices illegal or less than legal. And that interested me. So even while I was pregnant with my son, I started thinking about midwifery as a project that I wanted to look at. When we moved to Iowa, um, I realized that midwives weren't legal in Iowa. They weren't legal in Missouri or South Dakota. And I really started doing a very long-term ethnographic project around their illegality. And while I did that, I was raising my son, and reading lots of magazines. Well, not so many magazines, but I was reading some magazines. And I saw a call for book chapters that came across the web about fashion and feminism. And I thought of this quote that I had heard from Billy Joel's wife, where she said, the baby bump is the new Birkin. And I hadn't even known what a Birkin bag was. I had to go look it up. And I thought, wow, she's saying that a baby bump is like a handbag. 
And a baby is therefore an accessory. And I wrote a book chapter responding to this call, and it was published in a book called Fashion Talks. And in it, I talked about thinking about the baby bump as a fashion accessory, because the idea really disgusted me. And, and it also kind of fascinated me, because I knew that as a mom, I had been really curious about celebrities and their pregnancy and what they wore and how they looked and how they gave birth and what they ate. And I wondered what that curiosity meant about me as a mom, but I also wondered what it meant about us as a society. So I wrote that book chapter and I couldn't put everything in it that I was curious about. So I ended up writing a whole book <laughs> that let me develop the arguments further. And I spent a lot of time thinking through, well, what does it mean that as a culture, we are so obsessed with celebrity pregnancy? Yeah. And is that chapter that you wrote also published in a different book or is that yep. now part of the, okay. So yeah, it was published in, in the book called Fashion Talks and then it became um, mostly chapter three of Pregnant with the Stars, although I, I developed the chapter a bit more and then some pieces of chapters four and five were in that chapter. It just really grew kind of exponentially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. love the topic. I love all of that. So then are you back to the midwifery book? I am. I'm back to that and have a book proposal ready and I'm ready to, I have a little, a few more interviews I need to do with some midwives and activists, but I'm ready to write that one. Awesome. And it's and weird because I never, pregnancy is not my thing. <laughs> so I, I never anticipated that I would spend a good 10 to 15 years of my life talking to moms and midwives and advocates. It's not how I would have ever imagined my career going, but I just got kind of obsessed and interested. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely um, a fascinating topic, especially with the, you know, the celebrity limelight, because celebrities have so much influence over the way people um, sort of subconsciously set expectations around the way, the way to do things. They really do. And, you know, I don't think we're bad humans when we're fascinated by celebrities. And I don't think celebrities are doing something wrong by making their pregnancies public. But the impact of these images definitely influences how women feel they should perform their pregnancy and their postpartum life. Yeah. I remember re like uh, learning, it was in university, learning about this concept of social proof that when, when people see things, it's a way of learning and it's a way of validating our own behavior. Um, yeah. And I... And, and it's one of those things that people aren't even necessarily aware of when it happens. When they see things, they just think, oh, so... So this is the way successful people have pregnancies. <laughs> right. Sort of, right. When you and, look at that. Huh. That's interesting. When I was six months pregnant, we put our TV away. And um, and we don't, my husband and my son and I don't really indulge in too much mainstream media at all. I haven't bought like a Cosmo or a Glamour or a Marie Claire for a really, really long time. And the farther away I get from it, the more it seems possible for me to see kind of the overt impact of it on me, if that makes any sense. Just what do you think the impact has been on you? Well, for me, it's, it's a tendency to measure and judge myself. I don't know that it's that way for everyone. But I remember just even being in my early 20s, my husband would say, Oh, my gosh, have you been reading one of those magazines? You know, I would have a list of self improvement that I needed to undertake and kind of a really hard stick by which I would measure myself. And I've had 
students, especially male students, really push back on that. They'll say, but you know that those images are Photoshopped and you know that that's the work of a PR person. And even knowing that, even having a critical stance towards what's being represented, the perfectionist in me still believes I'm able to achieve uh, some measure of that. And Mm -hmm. one of the people that I quote in my book, Janice Min, um, she used to be a fashion or an editor at either us or people. I want to say us right now, but I could be wrong. But she wrote a book called How to Look Great in a Minivan. And she believes she's being really helpful when she tells her readers, you know, you're not you might not always look like that mom celebrity that you admire, but you can be the best version of yourself. And even that to me feels exhausting. <laughs> this is, oh, mm-hmm. you can always be the best version of you, the better you. You can get your body even back better than it was. Yeah. This <laughs> continual self-improvement is exhausting. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's not at all compatible with living in the moment. And for me, it's not compatible with being the parent I want to be mm-hmm. or the, the human I want to be. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> it's sort of interesting, this delineation between <clears throat> idolizing an image and seeking a, a maybe a false perfection versus a desire for ongoing sort of self-development, yeah. which can actually be a very positive thing where someone might be focused on loving themselves, loving their body, accepting where they are, um, you know, discovering meditation or find, finding ways to make themselves feel good and, and happy and content and grateful with their lives versus sort of aiming, aiming to sort of achieve this greater thing because they think that they'll find happiness if only they can look that way or have those things or have that lifestyle. Right. It's, re- it's really, I think people confuse the two, but they're very different. And it, but it is such a fine line. And one of the things that I argue in the book is when we're looking at celebrity pregnancies, we both idealize them and normalize them. And it's one thing to say, oh my gosh, that's an ideal. But it's another to say, and I should have it too because I, because I can. So to normalize, go, you know, mm, Gwyneth Paltrow's body while idealizing it, I'm, I'm a 5'1 curvy brunette. It will never, I will never have <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow's body. But to see that as a normal thing to happen after birth or a normal thing to happen when you're a working mom, even though, and to give her credit, she gives, um, she says very, very plainly, I have someone who watches the baby while I work out when, when she had babies, or this is my job and I have to look good. So I do it. But we all still have this moment of this is ideal and this is normal and this is not me. And that's a hard, that's just a hard feeling to have to be constantly measured against. Yeah, it sets an unfair expectation. You know, one thing we've talked about on the program with uh, with other guests is this idea of the physical body changing because of pregnancy and your emotional and mental self changing because of having a baby. Yeah. And and this idea that there's no going back. There's <laughs> only there's only going through and growing and using the opportunity to grow as a woman and become better. Mm. Uh, in a lot of respects, um, because you have all of this new opportunity um, with a new family and, and that sort of thing, um, means that it's just it's it means it's a new normal. It's a different, and there's it's just impossible to go back. 
um, to the same body or the same mental state or the same emotional state. It's just all different. And, um, you know, this idea of your body kind of going back to what it was, doesn't, it, it just doesn't really work. No. And, and I know Angie and I have had this conversation too. I don't know how much of my body not going back is because I'm a mom or because, you know, I turned 45 this month. Things <laughs> change. They just simply do. But there's something about pregnancy that feels like this demarcation, you know, before and after. Mm-hmm. And I know when I was pregnant, I was struck by how inevitable it was. You know, that, that moment when you realize no matter what, I'm, I'm having this baby. Like, <laughs> it's inevitable. Oh, yeah. You know, and no matter what, I'm aging. And thank goodness for both of those things. Because it isn't all inevitable, right? You know, some, some women lose their pregnancies. Some people lose their lives before, <laughs> most before they're ready. But we still have a sense that we can always go back. No, you're, you said it so eloquently, change is what happens and getting comfortable with that change is important. And not always saying it is negative. Total. Yes, absolutely. And maybe setting the expectation that it's not going to be the same. I'm actually very happy. My body is different now that I've had a baby. I love my body. I respect it. I, I, you know, I think that our bodies perform miracles. You know, we don't tell them, okay, make a baby. Like it just happens. It's incredible. (laughs) It's a miracle. And there are things I like about my body now that I never would have said when I was 32 that I liked about my body. (laughs) You know, it's like, (laughs) oh, you know what? I appreciate my ankle. Thank you. (laughs) But with celebrities, we're constantly confronted with photos of them before and after, before, Mm -hmm. during and after, because Mm -hmm. they're, you know, you do an image search on anybody who's famous and you get, you get, it's a flattened timeline. You don't know that there were three years in between. You don't know what happened in between. With ourselves, we have at least a narrative of self where I can look at pictures of me at 25 and pictures of me pregnant and pictures of me now and know what happened in between. But with mm-hmm. a celebrity, we're just, we have one version of that story and it's a highly managed version. And so there's an expectation of return mm-hmm. or, or, or coming back better than ever. You know? Hmm. Yeah. Are there some celebrities that you think have um, kind of stood in the face of that of that whole body image? Mm. Uh, well, I'm trigger- kind of in love with Pink right now. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh Let's my gosh. Let's talk about Pink. I had a whole a really much longer chapter on rebellious mothers that I cut quite a bit out of, but Pink remains one of those rebellious moms, and I didn't really notice her pregnancy in that way, but her postpartum body. And the way that she was very open about breastfeeding and open about it as being a sensual undertaking and a physical undertaking as well as maternal, I thought some of those photos and the way she used them, was they were stunning. And then to have her speak out at the VMAs and talk about standards of beauty and femininity while wearing a suit and looking gorgeous and having her daughter there, uh, total crush on pink. I think mm-hmm. she's doing motherhood in a really interesting way. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, also very interesting is Kristen Bell, um, much more conventional um, in terms of the way she presents herself as a mom and as someone who's you know pretty, I would say beautiful, but and not losing the baby weight right away and going very famously on the cover of Red Book and saying I'm not going to lose the baby weight right away. And she looks like one of us, which is another part of celebrity. We have to feel like they're attainable. 
not just the star that we can never be. So I think Kristen Bell, for a lot of postpartum women, at least five years ago, gave gave women this kind of permission to be who they were postpartum and not have that expectation put on them that they would lose the weight right away, but in a really nice conventional way. It's pretty brave, I think, for someone in the limelight to say, yeah, I'm not going to do what everyone else is doing. Yeah. Right. I think that's a very respectable position to be in because I think, I think women who, um, I don't know if brave is actually the right word. Maybe it's confident. <laughs> oh, I like confident. Yeah. 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 Because, you know, bravery, I don't think these women, yes, they could lose some career, right? But they're not going to lose a heck of a lot of money. So I think they, they don't risk the things that other women who don't have a safety net might risk. But confident, I like that. Mm-hmm. I think they're being confident in who they are. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, let's go with confident. <laughs> <laughs> let's go back to the bump as a fashion accessory because I mm-hmm. find that really interesting too. What is it about being pregnant that gets generates so much attention, at least in U.S. culture, versus the postpartum period? Or we just mean, mm-hmm. we don't mean depression when we say postpartum. We just mean that immediate few months, mm-hmm. six months after birth. Like how come there's so much attention during pregnancy and like, all the tension seems to just go out the door after the baby's born. Like, wh- Do you mean for celebrities or for regular moms? I mean, just, I guess, mm, I guess I mean mostly non-celebrity people, mm-hmm. but I wonder if there's a bit of that for, it's probably not true for celebrities actually, because people want to take pictures of celebrities all the time. Right. But, but photos of pregnant celebrities are so much more expensive, paparazzi photos. And capturing their images while pregnant, it's a huge deal. And then the, the oh my gosh, is she pregnant or is she just bloated? That I think, I actually think that they're magnifying what happens to average women when they become pregnant. So I don't know. I think there's probably a lot going on. I know on the one hand, our data becomes much more expensive when we're pregnant. So as a marketing Thing as a way to commodify all of the things that people might want to sell us. A pregnant woman is an incredibly valuable data point so mm-hmm. that we're surveilled by market forces. We're surveilled, you know, by your target red card, what, what you're buying, um, the mailers that come to you, those kinds of things are the, this, this low level surveillance in order to sell us things because when we're pregnant and mothering, we buy more things. So there's that. But that doesn't explain why, you know, the woman at the park wants to touch your belly. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, that's a different thing. Or, or why the waitress won't serve you sushi. Or when I was pregnant, I had really bad all the time morning sickness. And I was teaching summer school and I was drinking a Coke. And one of my students said, Professor Kramer, drinking caffeine is bad for your baby. (laughs) And I said, you know what? Barfing on you is bad for you. You (laughs) But why she, who wasn't a mom, Mm -hmm. felt it was okay to tell me how I need to be in the world in relationship to the fetus, that's an interesting thing. And it's not just American, but America tends to make policy around those issues more than some other Western democracies. Mm-hmm. And I think the way that we watch celebrities seems to make us feel that we have permission to watch and judge other people when they're pregnant and opens us when we're pregnant and postpartum 
up to the idea that it's okay that, you know, yeah, you can judge what I'm doing. Yeah, you can surveil what I'm doing. Yeah, go ahead and make policy about what I'm doing. When I really did need to drink that Coke, or mm-hmm. I really am okay riding a bike, or um, Nicole Kidman went to spin class a couple of weeks before she gave birth and the press went crazy. Mm. Is her bump big enough? Should she be working out? Well, there's a little bit of not trusting women to know what is right for us in that kind of a discourse. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things about having love of yourself and confidence is trusting that you do know what's right. And that if you don't, you're a capable person who can find out, who can ask. Mm-hmm. Who can go to the right sources, Yeah, <laughs> right? The, um, medical doctors, midwives, people who have seen thousands of pregnancies and births and who who actually are an authority about, you know, child and maternal safety. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there's, we have this sense of gossip. The original gossips were women who sat with women in childbirth and then went out and shared with the community that she had had her child. And that's so, where that word comes from? Yes. I don't know the, the background of the actual word, but that's what that word is describing. Wow. And so this idea that women sharing women's news, which we now marginalize as gossip, but, th- but you would ask the gossip, how are these things? What is this with me? Is everything okay? And then she would be emboldened to share your news, where now the press stands in for that, or the media, the celebrity media. Oh, we're going mm-hmm. to share news that Katie Holmes is pregnant. We're going to share news about, you know, I keep telling my students, I hope Rihanna has a baby soon, because that will just make my day. But it's really none of my business, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that's gossip, but it's a, it's, it's doing something very different than it used to do. So what do you talk about in your, cl- in the classroom setting when you talk about these oh. topics? What coursework are you doing? I'm so interested. So I teach a class called reproductive law and politics. Okay. And we, I love to teach it. I only give myself the gift of teaching it every three semesters, but we start with slavery actually. And the way that women's reproduction has been coerced for purposes of nation building and um, commerce. And we move through slavery to urbanization and the way that anonymity enabled some women to have freedom sexually and to you know, choose their partners. Uh, then we look at birth control and its necessity um, in order for those same women to continue to have some autonomy and not always have the consequence of pregnancy through the use of birth control. Then we talk about abortion and the way that that has changed over time as a political issue, because it has very radically shifted since the late 1800s to now the way that we even talk about abortion and choice and life and consent. And then we talk about birth and midwives and how women um, may or may not experience trauma in hospitals. Um, What does it mean to choose a home birth? What kinds of support do women have when they want to labor in that way? And then what are the consequences of our choices? So what does it mean um, six months later when it's time to go back to work? Do you have access to child care? Have you lost your job? Did you not even get six months? I had nine months. I had a union faculty job and really good luck with timing my pregnancy. But what if you have to go straight back to work? How does that how did, how, you know, how is that a part of reproductive choice? So, oh, it's such a fun class. We watch a ton of movies and they do a lot of writing. They get to interview their mom if they're able to about their birth story. 
and how their birth impacted how their mom sees, you know, the state or doctors, medicine, and herself. Mm -hmm. What is the relationship, if any, between like, what are the themes in all of this that seem to come through? Like, is there, do you, like, what's the relationship between like control over women and is it men's control over women? Is it the politics control over women and their bodies um, that sort of like plays into today's hospital setting, um, today's use of medicine, uh, C-section rates, that kind of thing. Um, the fact that, you know, I think you were mentioning midwifery isn't legal everywhere. Yeah. Like, is there a relationship between all of these things? Yeah. So I, the theme running through my class is usually this question about what real choice is and what consent means in all of these different settings. So even, you know, mm -hmm. consent to have sex or the choice of different forms of birth control or the choice not to be a mom because we have a pretty compulsory um, maternal we, we, we expect that women who get married or women who live with men will have children. We expect that most women will have children. So we talk about that. And, you know, my students often ask, well, is this misogyny? Is this patriarchy? Is this capitalism? Is it women's internalized oppression? Is it, you know, I don't know. I think for me, the answer is we can't answer that unless we're looking at specific women, specific situations, specific historical contexts. So there mm -hmm. are reasons why midwifery is now legal in Missouri and why it just got legalized in South Dakota and why Iowa still isn't legal. And those are, are fun and interesting to tease out. And then there are reasons that tie those reasons back to questions about abortion or questions about the medical profession and questions about women's knowledge. And I love to unravel those questions. And hopefully I'm doing something useful when I do it. But when it just comes down to my students' lived experience, it's always me wanting them to focus on what they know from their own lived experience in their own bodies and how to make responsible decisions with that knowledge. Mm -hmm. Do you have any stories you can tell to bring that to life of any mm. student stories and the implications of that? <laughs> no, I wish they were all here so that they could share them. <laughs> um, what in, in a lot of my classes, I have my students do embodied mindfulness. They can sign up to choose that as an option. So they agree to spend five minutes a day in meditation mm -hmm. and go to yoga once a week and then write a paper about how that connects with their understanding of the course material. And feminist political theory says, you know, our standpoint is really important. Our perspective is important. And so does critical race theory. And my students tend to understand that more fully when they are engaging in a, in a mindfulness or embodied mindfulness practice, because it's easier than to start seeing how your mind um, creates stories for you. You know, you can step outside of that every once in a while, and then you can see what kinds of structured expectations are put on you by society. So mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable sharing any of their particular stories, but I can tell you that those are the kinds of things they start to share. Right. Right. That, you know, maybe they had never questioned something that they took as, as a standard. Yeah. And it doesn't yeah. need to be. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, what would you want to share with anyone who's expecting mm. their first baby or maybe expecting a second baby? Part of me wants to say, turn the TV off and put the magazines <laughs> down and in and feel what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. 
uh, part of me wants to say enjoy it, but I, you know, this isn't always about enjoyment or or joy. It's about, like you said earlier, moving through and being with. Um, I always want to say be safe. You know, if something hits you in the gut that doesn't seem right, be it the diet afterwards or the person that you've met who might attend the birth, to to really trust yourself. I remember when I was pregnant one day, I was walking my dog, and this other dog came across the street at us. And my dog was like, this isn't okay. And before I could even tell the woman who was walking the other dog, you know, I'm uncomfortable with this. The the other dog was on us. And I could feel my son in my belly respond to my stress and curl up into this kind of hard ball. And I was so grateful to my dog for protecting us. Mm -hmm. And it made me realize in that moment, oh, that's my job right? Like, (laughs) thank you, Daisy dog for showing me this because I am a mama bear now, right? I, (laughs) I, I get to be fierce and I'm going to be fierce and I'm sometimes going to be wrong, but this kid is put on this earth to be my priority for as long as I have the privilege of focusing on him. That doesn't mean I don't focus on me and it doesn't mean I don't focus on my family or my career, but I'm this kid's fierce protector. And that feels really good and empowering in an interesting way, a way that I did not expect to feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. All all of that, just kind of um, thinking ahead of time about questioning the the images that you see, kind of shutting the TV off. I mean, you can still consume media, right? But just oh, yeah. maybe do it in an aware way is sort of what you're highlighting. Like, what does this photo of um, this celebrity, how do I feel after I've looked at it? Mm-hmm. If I feel bad, it might not be because I don't measure up. It might be because it's manipulated to make me want to buy something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it might not be about me at all. It might really be the purpose of of the piece. Hmm. Yeah, and it might be attractive because it's playing into some idea of like what perfect is when that's, that's right. like totally not the case. And what um, is perfect? I, My goodness. <laughs> and who? Yeah, and who wants to be perfect? Let's just let go of perfect. Let's let Let's go let, of perfect. I also really liked what you said about you know taking on this new role, but mm. in doing that, not letting go of your previous self. Yeah. It's strange if, so my child is now 12 and a half and I didn't leave him physically um, for more than a few hours at a time until he was three and a half. And then I went to a conference and he was still breastfeeding and I thought this might to start weaning and it didn't, but, (laughs) but I remember being not with him and I wanted everyone to know I was a mom. Like, Aww. like what, you know, I'd get on an elevator and he wouldn't be there. And I'd just be like, yep, I have a son, you know, like, <laughs> and not as an excuse. You know, I, I used sometimes when we're pregnant right before we actually have the bump, we just feel pudgy. And so you want to get the bump so that people know you're not just, you know, gaining weight, that it's weight with a purpose. Mm-hmm. So, and it wasn't like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm three years postpartum and still have an extra eight to 12 or 15 pounds. I'm a mom. That's why it was more, I'm preoccupied with my love for this other creature who is not here and you need to know it, you know? Yeah. Finding who I was in the elevator was a really important thing for me to do. Mm -hmm. And probably still in process nine years after that, who am I when he's at home playing Minecraft and I'm on the phone with you? 
mm-hmm. talking about him. Who am I <laughs> when I'm with my students or with my husband? Who am I sitting quietly or walking my dogs? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm still the person I was at 30 before I had him, but I'm also so fantastically different, I can't even tell you. Mm-hmm. And that's nice to, to realize that from a perspective. I would also say, and this is probably controversial, unless it involves becoming safer, like leaving a bad relationship or an earthquake, I wouldn't make any major decision in the first year postpartum. I regret that I did. So I, I tell anyone I know now, just chill out for that year. You are, you're, <laughs> don't make a big move. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Uh, why, do you want to talk more about your experience? Um, we were living in LA and I'm originally from South Dakota and I, I also got very, very sick with vertigo about six months postpartum and my mom had to fly out to help me and I became panicked and convinced that I had to move closer to home for when that happened again and I didn't want him growing up with traffic and I didn't want him growing up without a backyard and I moved us. Like I successfully found a job and I'm thrilled with where I landed, but I made the decision based in fear and that fear was partly hormonal and partly, um, wow, I'm a new mom. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I have to be a mother bear and and protect this kid from everything that I can imagine when, you know what? Mm -hmm. You can't, if I had waited Mm -hmm. a year, we might still have moved, but I would have a different understanding of why I had done it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And practically it might be a little bit easier without an infant. You know, a really young, young baby. (laughs) I did six cross country flights on job interviews with my husband and my infant because I was a nursing mom. So every place I got a job interview, I would pay to fly both of them with me. My husband would stay with him and bring him to me in the middle of the day because academic interviews are day and a half long marathons. And I would nurse him and then go back to interview. It was crazy. It was crazy. But I also learned a lot about potential employers and their willingness to accommodate nursing moms. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, I wish all employers were so welcoming and accommodating of new mothers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of touching back. So you, you mentioned it earlier, just like this, you know, this question about like, well, you know, some moms are forced to go back to uh-huh. work right away. And that's something that, wow, you know, the United States is pretty behind compared to some countries in that respect ahead of, ahead of some, but, um, yeah, I just I've I've read the stories about women who are forced to go back before they wanted to, and their children um, really suffered as a result. So I just my heart goes out to to women who um, who feel like they don't have choices, right? And it and it might be an economic choice because currently, I I don't know a woman actually who could afford to take six weeks unpaid, which is all the law protects a woman to do. Most employers understand that it's both humane and good business sense to offer paid leave, Mm -hmm. but they're not required to by law. So they might not feel financially able to, but they also might not feel mm, enabled in their workplace, even if it is paid leave, you know, well, if I come back, will I be behind? Will I be demoted? Will I be moved to another department? Those kinds of questions. And most of that is legally prohibited, Mm -hmm. but we all know that those legal prohibitions, we can get around them or they can be gotten around. So I think a lot of women might prefer to take more time, but are not able to. And then I know that there are women who are like, no, I want to go back right now. (laughs) You know, this is, this is working for me. And we also tend as a society to judge that. I think there's just so much mom judging. I'm sure there's dad judging. I'm sure there is, but it's so much mom judging. 
How much time there did is. you take? How much time did you breastfeed? Did you have a C-section? My goodness. You know what? Wow. Let's, <laughs> let's back off. Yeah. How about, are it's you hard doing enough. okay? You know? Yes. Oh, that's the other yeah, thing. Yeah. I, I try never to tell a woman who is pregnant, oh my gosh, you don't even look pregnant. You know, like that's a compliment. Or you look so, you've got that glow. You know what? How about you look strong? You look capable. You look well-rested. Or you don't. And can I help? Yes. Yeah. The, the, you look anything is like, so you're, it's like the woman feels like, oh no, I'm an, I'm being looked at. Right. Just as, as a concept in the first place. Yeah. I yeah. really like that. Yeah. If we could just ask people, how are you? Mm-hmm. How, what can I do to help you? Can I bring you a meal after you have your baby? Right. Can I, can I buy, can I bring groceries over? Tell me what you need. Can I clean can your I bathroom? Can I take your two-year-old to the park so that mm-hmm. you can nap with the baby? Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, life altering moments. It's just these little things actually are a really big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um <clears throat> so um not losing yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's there's something to be said about the example that we're showing our children when we don't make our children with a hundred percent of the focus. Mm. there's sort of, um, there's a lot of responsibility for a little person. So I really like that you, that you highlighted the, the idea of, um, you know, like maintaining your own sense of self and, and being able to do that in addition to becoming, you know, a mom as a new role. Mm -hmm. That's really, that's really important. And it helps, you know, with the self-definition stuff, it ties into body image, doesn't it? Are there, um, what, what celebrities do you like talking about? <laughs> well, I love, you know, I feel like I'm getting older now and, and I'm moving beyond the project. So mm. I always still love to talk about Mila Kunis. I just love the way that she has been pregnant. I love the way she seems to parent. I love the movie Bad Moms, although mm-hmm. I think I'm not going to love Bad Moms at Christmas. I think I'm not going to. But I love I love her as a mom and as a human, um, what I can see of her. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk. I love to fantasize about Rihanna being pregnant. <laughs> Did you talk? That would be so great. Oh my gosh. I know. She's wonderful. Did you um, talk to any celebrities as part of doing your book? No. Um, no. I reached out to Maya Bialik, um because I was going to try to talk about her non-traditional or her, I don't know if it's non-traditional or more traditional ways of parenting. She does attachment parenting and she's a critic of some vaccinations. And, um, I wanted to chat with her about that, but she never reached out back. Um, Ashton Kutcher got an award at Drake, my, my institution last year. And I gave a copy of the book to their press people, but I've not talked to her. So no, Uh no, I've tried, tried in limited ways, (laughs) but no. There you yeah. go. We um, just because you said the vaccine word, I'm just going to mention we're pretty pro vaccine on Fourth Trimester mm-hmm. podcast. <laughs> um, I know, I know. There's like um, celebrities again have the ability to have these a, a huge degree of influence. Um, yes, and and that's a pretty hot topic. But it we is. Definitely, and I, we definitely I support said science. The name of that celebrity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. The, no. Yeah. We can move on. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So you've, you're focused on midwifery now. Yep. You're, you're looking into it from a regulatory standpoint. Um, yeah. What are you finding? Like what, why would someone, 
Or why would a state decide midwifery is not a good idea? Like, should we remind everyone what a midwife is and then kind of talk about that? So in every state, certified nurse midwives are legal. So women who have, or nurses who have nursing degrees who specialize in midwifery, those are legal. And in every state, certified nurse midwives now can attend home birth. In almost every state, certified professional midwives are also now legal for home birth. Although when I started this project, it was not legal or regulated in around 22 states. And that is changing really rapidly. Just over the last year, Michigan and South Dakota have both legalized certified nurse midwives and regulated them. In Iowa, we are quasi, they are quasi legal and unregulated. And there are a lot of reasons why that is, all of them historical, all of them dealing basically with the state and the state's relationship to medicine and the state's relationship to regulation. So the reasons that they stay illegal, anymore now it's because the state will say, we don't need more regulation. We don't have enough money for a regulatory board. And if we can't regulate you, you are not safe. And therefore, we can't have you for public health reasons. That tends to be the argument now. Five years ago, it was different. Um, There was you know, do midwives perform abortions? Do midwives, are midwives um, engaging in anti-vaccine work? Those kinds of questions around cultural and scientific issues. Um, Those we don't hear so much anymore. Now it's really a matter of the state saying, state legislators saying, we don't want to regulate this because we don't believe in regulation. We can't afford a new state board. You can't have a law. Mm. There are some mm. legislators who will say that they don't believe that that birth out of hospital is safe. There is simply no good data supporting their belief in that. But there will always be people on in a state house who vote against legalizing and regulating midwives because they think it's simply unsafe to do so. Mm -hmm. Um, They're wrong. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) We had a really fascinating conversation with Jessica Moore. Uh who's a got, yeah, a documentary maker. Um, her film is called Why Not Home. Yep. And actually, I'll just plug this because it's really cool. They just launched on iTunes and Amazon. Yeah. They're also on Vimeo. I think they've been on Vimeo for a while. So yep. if you have an Apple TV, you can actually watch it for free on Vimeo. Well, it's and it's a cool, really but- interesting um, documentary because she comes from the perspective of the medical profession. Mm-hmm. So a real evidence-based, you know, huh, this does seem to actually be safe and more comfortable hmm. and mm-hmm. more economical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's sort of on her website. Anyone can go and look at it. Um, she just has like one like very short page talking about like the evidence and like how there's two different big reports that get cited. Usually mm-hmm. like one was European and it was a huge study, much bigger study than one that was done in the US. And that study found that there's like, there's no like higher risk. I, I mean, I'm not going to say this medically the perfect way. So look at the website. But basically, there aren't higher cases of like infant um, death rates or yep. other kind of risks associated with home birth versus hospital. Then there's this other piece of research, which was like a, an amalgamation of a lot of other pieces of research put together based on the U S but it was like based on far less data that concluded that like, Oh, maybe it is riskier, but people, it seems like there's no agreement on which report is better. And actually probably neither report is, <laughs> is like as thorough as anyone would want it to be. Um, so yeah, it seems like there's a real lack of evidence on some of these issues. Well, it all, it also all depends on the population being studied. So if we say a low risk pregnancy or with a skilled provider, 
then really I've not seen any data that would show that it is less safe to have a child out of the hospital for mm-hmm. a low risk, low risk person with a skilled provider. And then the question is, well, does regulation help us achieve skilled providers by licensing them through the certified professional midwifery license? Does that help ensure, you know, kind of quality control? Does it ensure best practice? Does it ensure continuing education? Many people would argue that it is safer to do that than it is to have unlicensed midwives in states um, performing out-of-hospital birth. Also, in states where it's not legal, it's really dangerous for the midwife and sometimes for the parents to transfer to a hospital in a situation of an emergency because she runs the risk of prosecution and the family runs the risk of getting on the radar screen of child protective services. So the transfer, if you have something go wrong at the last minute in a state where your practice isn't legal, it's a much more dangerous situation. And if something goes wrong in childbirth and you can simply transfer and you have a good agreement with the hospital and you know the doctors and you can maintain care up until the transfer of care, that's a safer model. It's called integration of care. And I've been working with a really multidisciplinary team of researchers to map integration of care in the United States. And that website will go live hopefully in November. Um, And it shows really clearly that integrated care is safer care and that integrated care sometimes relies on the legal status of the midwife. Mm -hmm. I got all wonky there. (laughs) No, no, I I love it. No, that's fascinating because it, you know, as from a really, from just a practical standpoint, like anyone who's listening to this program because they're pregnant and they're thinking about all their options and a lot of different aspects of their life, like, you know, home birth is a really big sort of question mark for a lot of people. Like the default is go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you if you know someone who's had a home birth or you've researched it and you think, oh, actually, you know, I, I'm, this is something I want to do. Like make sure I love I love the practical standpoint of like make sure you know that it's legal and, and regulated because if something does go wrong, like you want to be able to have that safe transfer. Right. Right. And, you know, you could... You could also choose to get all of your prenatal care from a midwife because it, prenatal care from midwives tend to be hour-long visits and integrated with your family and not focused on, you know, what are your numbers in terms of weight and peeing in a cup. There's much more involved in that prenatal care, and you could still deliver in a hospital. And is that at someone's house? Like, do they come to your house or do they you go somewhere? They often come to your house. There oh. are some midwives who have birth centers, both certified nurse and certified professional midwives who have birth centers. Sometimes those birth centers are attached to hospitals. But there are lots of ways to manage your care. I had, just for full disclosure, I had a hospital birth um, <laughs> for, lots, for, for reasons of finance. And if I could do anything differently, I probably, I might have still gone to the hospital, but I would have had my prenatal care with a midwife uh, so that I didn't feel like it was just, oh, how much weight did you gain? Go home. You know, mm-hmm. more talking about development and my life and how I was feeling. So, yeah, I would totally have used a midwife for prenatal care for sure. Mm-hmm. Did you um, – so I had a hospital birth too. Mm-hmm. I had um, a birth doula attend my hospital birth and then mm-hmm. I had um, the, co- the co-host of the show, Esther Gallagher, who people listen to on lots of our programs. Yeah. Um, she was also my postpartum doula. Yeah. No, I had no doula. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I had my husband and he was wonderful. And I had a four hour start to finish back labor, hospital birth, unmedicated. And and it was horrible. (laughs) It was bad. Um, and I went home and I felt really, really alone. It was just me and my husband and the baby and that was okay. 
But once I started getting out of the house and going to La Leche meetings, I felt so supported. Just mm-hmm. having a group of like-minded moms, we would meet at the park twice a week. And my baby did not like the car seat. And we lived in Los <laughs> Angeles County. And some days he would scream and I just couldn't get him to go. And I remember once my friend Claire came over with her four children and her infant and brought me cake. And I thought, this is what moms do. This is support. So that kind of community absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely helped. My, the person I consider my best friend I met two months after my son was born and her daughter was born three days after my son in the same hospital. And we met online on the mothering.com websites. <laughs> and it was like, oh, we're supposed to be friends. This is the coolest thing. I can't believe that you know we were pregnant at the same time in the same place and didn't know each other. And we were able to support each other. So having those strong friendships mm-hmm. was really useful. I wish, I don't think I would have liked having a doula. I'm kind of very um, private, but I wish I had had a midwife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, whatever, it's like different for everybody. Right. And, but I think what you're, yeah, you're, you're saying like, is you had a really great support structure around yeah. you, um, especially for that, those times after you, you know, had your baby and you had this infinite home and you had questions or just couldn't get out of the house. Couldn't get out of the house. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been there. And he also was one of those kids who hated the stroller because I had the fantasy that we were going to do runs on the beach. And he was like, no, I want to be in the sling. I want to be in the ergo. I want to be on your body. Okay. But Mm -hmm. he was in a stroller twice. (laughs) twice in his entire life. And just having other moms who would go, oh, that's okay that he's in the sling and you're vacuuming and running water because he's crying and you're gardening and he's in the ergo. That's cool. No judgment. (laughs) You know, not why can't you meet us at the coffee shop? Put him in the stroller and go. No. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. So we're wrapping up. Um, I want to remind everyone about your book once again, which is Pregnant with the Stars, Watching and Wanting the Celebrity Baby Bump. Um, I'm, I'm assuming it's available on Amazon. It is available on Amazon. It is. And I would love it if people would read it and reach out. We have not very much talked about kind of the heart of the book. We've talked more about parenting. And I think that's so cool. So people who read the book might be surprised that it's a little more wonky academic than our conversation has been. But I think they'll enjoy it. Is there anything that you want to talk about from the book as like a, a final message? Mm, no. Enjoy your pregnancy and your life to the extent that you can. (laughs) You know, life is hard. Life is really hard. And I think if we can support each other, more power to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, we're going to wrap up with that. Um, It's a perfect note to end on. Again, there's uh, the fourth trimester podcast website that you can go and visit and you can set up for our newsletter and you can like us on Facebook. Um, and you can definitely reach out to me and or Esther. And it sounds like if people want to get a hold of you, Renee, you're welcoming that too. How would someone get in touch with you? Absolutely. They can reach me through my email at my university. So my name, Renee.Kramer at drake.edu. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Renee. Thank you. You can subscribe to this podcast in order to hear more from us. Thank you for listening, everyone, and I hope you'll join us next time on the fourth trimester. The theme music on this podcast was created by Sean Trott. Hear more at soundcloud.com slash Sean Trott. Special thanks to my true loves, my husband Ben, daughter Penelope, and baby girl Evelyn. Don't forget to share the fourth trimester podcast with any new and expecting parents. I'm Sarah Trott. Goodbye for now.
wrote the song, simple and true. I wrote the song, I'll sing a song for you. You got your wheels, you got your gears, you ride around town with your pedals, you got your brakes, you always wear your helmet for safety's sake. Song, I sing a song for you. 